0: Since I became a parent, I've learned many things. One of those things is how difficult it is to teach your children things. Yes, I got an amen already. That's good. <laughs> amen indeed. Now, my daughter is only 16 months, so there's, there's a limit to what she can and can't learn. But she's smart. There's certain things she knows she should and shouldn't do. But my daughter, she doesn't learn things easily. I can't just tell her once, Madeline, don't do this. She does not learn that way. She likes to push the envelope. She insists on learning things the hard way. When we tried to teach my daughter how to uh, get off of the couch, that was a fun process because we tried to tell her, Madeline, you need to roll onto your belly and then slide off onto your feet so you don't fall and get hurt. She did not like that. We would try to roll her on her belly, she would scream no, she'd push us away, and she would do it her way. Now her way was scooching as close as she could to the edge, and then slowly looking forward, and falling off of the couch onto her face. It was a difficult process. She learned a tough lesson, but eventually she learned you don't want to lead with your face. It doesn't feel good. Uh, She loves to chase our cats around the house, and she's been walking for a while, but she's a little bit taller now. And if she tries to chase him under the table, she smashes her head on our wood table. So we try to guide her head under and and prevent that from happening. But again, no, 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 hit her hands away. She bumped her head a few times, and now she welcomes our gentle guiding hand. The one we're currently trying to teach her is not to pull our cat's tail. Our cats have been very patient so far, but I feel like there's another tough lesson coming here pretty quickly. It's cute and it's funny when when a baby is stubborn, when they refuse to listen, when they decide that they are going to learn the hard way. It's a lot less funny when it's an adult, when it's a grown follower of Jesus who refuses to listen to God and his way, but insists on learning things the hard way. In our passage this afternoon, David shares his own experience of insisting on learning the hard way, not to conceal his sin, but to confess it instead. And he wants to use that experience to warn each of us not to make his same mistake. And so the Holy Spirit through David in Psalm 32 is challenging us not to be foolish, not to persist in sinfulness, not to cover it up, but to be wise when we sin and quickly confess it and seek forgiveness from the Lord. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 32, and we are going to read verses 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, you'll notice the word selah there is used a couple of times in these verses. It'll be used once later in the psalm as well. And I wanted to hit that right up front. This this is simply a poetic or, or a musical term. Um, we don't actually translate it. It is Selah in Hebrew as well. And, and it would let the people reading this psalm in worship know that, that the author intended a pause, a break in the structure of the psalm there. So we just took the Hebrew word and we gave it some English letters, and that's what it is. So as we read through that, you can see that they're calling for us to take a little bit of a pause. Now the main thrust of this psalm is seen in the first two verses. God offers great joy and forgiveness to sinners. Those who experience the forgiveness of God are blessed, it says. And the use of the word blessed here is what's called in Hebrew an abstract plural. So it's written in a plural form, but that doesn't, it doesn't indicate multiple blessings. It indicates the extent of the blessedness. So this is not a mere statement from David. This is an exclamation. He, he's excited about how blessed the forgiven sinner is. You could translate this as how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That man is incredibly blessed. And the blessedness being spoken of is the the blissful joy that stems from being in a right relationship with God. And every believer knows that there is no better joy, no better comfort than knowing that you are within the will of God, walking rightly before him. It feels right. It feels like we are in the right place when we are doing what the Lord has asked us to do. So we are blessed when our fellowship with the Lord is not hindered by our own sinfulness. The one who confesses their sin receives forgiveness that doesn't have to carry the guilt of their sin, weighing them down. That person has great joy in the Lord. There are four phrases here. That, that modify or qualify the blessed person from verses 1 and 2. And three of them parallel each other, and the fourth adds a, a related but a different element. So in the first three, we find three different phrases describing the forgiveness of the sinner. And each one of those phrases uses a distinct word for sin, so you'll see the first one is transgression. The one whose transgression is forgiven, the one whose sin is covered, and the one whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him. That first word, transgression, is, is an intentional, a willful sin. This is a willful rebellion. This is an act of defiance against the one who is in authority over you. This is the kind of sin when you, when you say, yes, God, I know that you said this is not right, that this is wrong, But it looks really good, and I'm going to do it anyways. That is the kind of sin being described there. The second word, sin, we translate it sin. That's just the general Hebrew word for sin. That's all-encompassing, whether it's accidental, intentional, whatever it is, that is simply sin. And that final word, iniquity, it can also be used to speak generally about sin. Uh, But the nuance of that word is more to emphasize the guilt that we carry because of our sin. And the use of these three different terms is probably a little bit of a stylistic choice on David's part, but it also paints a picture of the total and complete forgiveness the Lord offers to those who are willing to confess and repent. When we confess our sins and repent, the Lord carries them away. That The word we translate forgiveness, that's what it literally means. To lift up and move it somewhere else. The Lord carries our sin away from us. He covers it or conceals it. He doesn't associate that with us any longer. Our guilt is no longer counted against us. We're no longer seen as guilty. What a gracious God we serve. Who else could show such incredible, unending mercy every single time we sin? Because I don't know about you guys, but I sin a lot. The Lord's forgiveness is truly unending. But there's one more qualifying phrase, as I said, for the one who is blessed. And it's that the one who is blessed has no deceit in his spirit. And this is a bit strange because we would expect just a fourth a phrase qualifying the forgiveness here, but what we actually get is a prerequisite for experiencing the forgiveness of the Lord. One can only be blessed when there is no deceit in his spirit. And this specific kind of deceit that David has in mind, it's a kind of deceitfulness that seeks to deny or to, to hide one's own sinfulness. So when we continue to indulge in secret sin, Rather than confessing and repenting of it There is deceit in our spirit When we try to justify our sinful choice When we say yeah probably wasn't the best choice But I I had to make I didn't have any other option When we make that kind of statement There is deceit in our spirit Or maybe when we only partially confess Because we don't really want to wrestle With how wicked our actions were That is also deceitfulness in our spirit Refusing to fully and honestly confess our sin to the Lord is to reject the joy of unhindered fellowship with him. If you allow deceit to live in your spirit, you are rejecting many of the blessings that we enjoy by being followers of Jesus. The the reminder that David's giving us this, the wisdom of this psalm, this is for each of us. This psalm was used in corporate worship. This was for the believer, This is not for the unbeliever, but for you and me who claim to follow Jesus. You may think that you're getting away with with that secret habit. You know, you might hide it well from your spouse, from your friends, from, from your fellow church members, from your elders. But brother or sister, you are not getting away with that secret sin. You may think there are no consequences for your sin, but there are. And they can be extremely severe the longer that sin remains in your heart and in your life, the longer you go without confessing it, without seeking forgiveness, the greater strain you will place on, the greater strain you will feel on your relationship with God. And not only that, by refusing to confess, you risk placing yourself under the heavy hand of the Lord's discipline. It would be so much easier just to confess our sin. But sometimes like my 16-month-old daughter, like David in this example he's going to share, we insist on doing things the hard way. Verses 3 to 5, David uses his own experience of learning the hard way. And he's trying to help us not make the very same mistake. And we don't know exactly what sin David is speaking of. Some people speculate that it was his sin with Bathsheba. Um, He just doesn't say, and it's doesn't really matter all that much because the point isn't how he sinned or what he did. The point is that he withheld, he did not confess his sin to the Lord. That is what's clear, that David was silent and refused to confess. And when he was silent, he says, his bones wasted away through his groaning all day long. So David, in his pride, was refusing to confess, refusing to seek the Lord's forgiveness and the outcome of that silence, the outcome of letting that sin persist, was utter and total misery. And, and all of us have experienced this guilt, right? The feeling of being sick to your stomach over your sin. The fear of hoping nobody finds out what you did. That feeling like you need to cover it up. That regret, that wishing that you had made a different choice. That kind of guilt is destroying David. And it feels as though his body itself is just wasting away. The spirit works to convict all of us when we sin. But it seems that God has intensified the guilt that David felt as a means of his discipline. Because he says that the hand of God was made heavy upon David day and night. There was no rest from the discipline that David was experiencing. And again, we don't know exactly what this discipline looked like, but based on David's description, I think we can uh, make an educated guess that it had to do with with the heavy and overwhelming guilt that he was feeling. But his bones waste away, and it says that his strength was dried up in the summer heat. Now, David uses a really unique word for strength here. And I just wanted to share this, because I found this really interesting. The word that he's using here for strength is not the normal word. It's used twice in the whole Bible. It's used here. It's also used in the book of Numbers. When it's used in the book of Numbers, we translate that word cake. Now, how do we get from cake to strength? Well, the cake in Numbers is a very specific type of cake. It's sweet. It's moist. It's baked with oil, kind of infused into the bread to keep it moist. And when David uses this word, I think that's the point. He, he's using that idea of moisture in order to make this little metaphor with the summer heat, because he says the summer heat has dried up his strength. So he's saying that, that his, uh, his vigor, his vitality, some commentators translate this as life juice instead of strength because they want to capture that idea of the moisture. Like the summer heat dries up the moisture that a plant needs to survive, the Lord's discipline is sucking up the the moisture, the vitality that David needs to keep on living. David's unconfessed sin has put him into severe spiritual, emotional, and physical distress. It appears that, that the Lord's discipline, the weight of this intense guilt, have put him even into a severe depression. His body, his energy, it's all been sapped. He has no strength. He's always miserable. Day and night, he is groaning and crying out. There is no relief from the misery he feels. Now, in case you are feeling, well, that seems harsh. That seems severe. Why does the Lord need to discipline in this way? I think it's important that we consider why the Lord does indeed discipline. And it's helpful to consider why parents discipline. Why does a parent discipline their child? To teach them what is right and wrong. To teach them how to be a, a contributing member in society. There's many reasons, but, but a parent disciplining a child is good for them. How many of you have ever had the, the, the joy of seeing an undisciplined child having an absolute meltdown at the grocery store? Anybody? Anybody? It's miserable, right? You can hear them from like thirty aisles over, and you can tell this kid has not been disciplined a day in their life, and that is not loving from the parent. They will grow up and be worse off because of it. They won't know what is right and wrong. They won't know how to respect people. They don't won't know how to be a decent person. Disciplining the child helps them know what is right and wrong. So, discipline, while it is painful for both the child and the parent is one of the most loving things a parent can do for their child. And that is why God disciplines his children. He loves us so deeply. He wants us to do what is right. Everything he has commanded of us is what is best for us. And so if necessary, he will discipline us so that we can walk in step with what he has commanded. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 11. It'll be up on the screen behind me. in order to teach us how to walk in holiness, how to be more and more like him. And there are many forms that that discipline of the Lord can take, just like a parent disciplining a child can discipline in several different ways. And it likely depends on the severity and the type of sin the child committed. Now David's example is not attempting to explain the exact form that God's discipline is going to take for us, but the purpose here is to contrast two different paths that we can take. When we sin, we can be foolish. We can hide our sin. We can continue to to pursue it, to continue insisting on that sin, refusing to confess, or we can be wise. We can confess that sin, embrace the Lord's forgiveness, embrace unhindered fellowship with him. David tells us in verse five that when he acknowledged his sin, when he stopped covering it up and concealing it, the discipline ceased. The Lord Forgave him. It is far better for us to simply acknowledge our sin and confess it than it is to persist in that sin. And of course, God already knows what our sin is, but we must still acknowledge what we did. We, we must agree with God that we have indeed sinned and that we have fallen short of his standard. That's no different than what we expect when people wrong us, is it? If somebody comes to you who has hurt you deeply and they simply say, Garrett, I, I'm sorry. I mean, the next question I'm going to ask is, well, why are you sorry? What are you apologizing for? I I want to know why. I want to know that they understand why they hurt me, why what they did was wrong. Because if they can't even do that, it doesn't appear to be a very sincere apology. So when you confess to the Lord, acknowledge what you did. Don't sugarcoat it to make yourself feel better. Acknowledge the wickedness in your actions. Be honest before the Lord and acknowledge your sin for what it is. So if you find yourself constantly complaining about the things that you don't have, confess to the Lord that you have not been content with what he's given you. Or maybe you need to confess that that you simply just haven't trusted in God's provision. When you allow your eyes to wander onto things that they shouldn't, when you look at things on the internet that you shouldn't be looking at, confess, ask the Lord to forgive your lack of self-control and the lust that is living in your heart. Students, when you disrespect your parents, honestly acknowledge before the Lord that that you have lacked humility, that you've refused to submit to the authority that he has placed over you for your good. Because it is through humble confession, honestly acknowledging our sin before the Lord, that we are blessed. And that's what David wants us to grasp here. If you're taking notes, number one is that confessing maintains fellowship with the Lord, but refusing to confess leads to his discipline. And I do want to add that that while God will always forgive those who humbly confess, that doesn't necessarily mean that the consequences of our actions will magically disappear. We may not be directly under the discipline of the Lord, but we can still endure the consequences of our actions. So David's words here offer a sharp warning to believers, but they're also a source of encouragement and hope to the one who finds himself weary under the weight of their guilt and sin. Brother or sister, stop carrying that guilt and that sin around, stop covering up your sin. That is an exhausting way to live and there is a much wiser and better way. Confess your sin, ask forgiveness and be blessed in the Lord. Continue reading with me. And verses six and seven. <clears throat> Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Verse six is a strange, a strange verse. So first, the therefore here, it tells us that that David wants us to draw a conclusion from his experience, right? What he just shared, he he wants us to grasp that. And so here he, he says that the godly, so in David's time, that would be faithful Israelites. In our time, that would be anybody who claims to follow Jesus. So the believer, he says, should offer prayer at a time when God may be found because surely when the waters rise, those prayers will not reach God. So the question is then, is there a time when God can't be found? What are these waters referring to? Is it these waters that keep our prayers from reaching the Lord? Most of us would instinctively say, well, of course God can always be found. He's always with us. He's always present. And I would agree with you. I think that is true. But the point that David is making is also true. Throughout the Bible, we find many occasions when the Lord refuses to hear the prayers of those who claim to be his people. In Psalm 66, the psalmist is praising God for answering his prayer and the good works of the Lord. But he also acknowledges that if I had cherished iniquity, if I had cherished wickedness in my heart, you would have ignored my prayers, Lord. Proverbs 28.9 tells us that if we reject the Lord's law, if we reject his commands, then our prayers are an abomination before the Lord. Isaiah 59, the Lord is speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, yes, I am more than capable of saving you. I I see your situation. I could hear your prayers, but you have loved your sin more than you have loved me. You have placed a separation between you and me because you have insisted on your sin. And because of that, I will hide my face from you, and I will not hear your prayers. So the Lord certainly does choose at times to ignore the prayers, even of those who claim to be his people. We also see frequently throughout the Bible that, that God always hears the prayers of the, of the righteous and the upright. 1 John three, uh, twenty one through 22 says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There is a clear and obvious connection in the Bible between obedience and effective prayer, between obedience and God hearing our prayers. And to be clear, I'm I'm not saying that if we obey God, he will answer our prayers exactly as we want him to and give us everything that we desire. God promises that if we are obedient, he will hear our prayers and he will answer them, but he will answer them according to his will in the way that he sees fit. I'm also not saying that the Lord requires perfection from his people in order to listen to their prayers. If God did not hear the prayers of sinful people, none of us would be forgiven. None of us would have salvation. There would be no hope for a single one of us. But what God does expect is that his people would be broken and contrite over their sin. And when they recognize their sin, they will quickly come before him to confess and seek forgiveness. In each of these passages that I just Reference, they, they speak of those who, who love their sin more than they love the Lord. Those who refuse to confess and embrace God's forgiveness, but instead persist in their sin, they should not presume that God will hear their prayers. However, if we are walking in obedience, walking in holiness before God, if we quickly confess when we do sin, we can know for certain that God will always hear our prayers. So, back to Psalm 32, what point is David making here? David is telling us, confess your sins now. Seek forgiveness now. Do not wait until things get bad, till the waters rise. And David may have in mind the the dry riverbeds in Israel, that during the flood seasons, uh, a flash flood could whip those things up into a raging rapid uh, instantly. And that's often how troubles come upon us. They just hit us out of nowhere and blindside us, and then it feels like we're, we're barely able to tread water. And so David's saying, don't think that you can ignore your sinfulness, refuse to confess, completely rebel against God, and then expect God to hear and save you when things get difficult. Those who live in such a way will find that, that God may very well refuse their, their cries of help in times of trouble. Now God is a good and gracious God. He may still have compassion on one such as this and deliver them. But it would be foolishness for them to assume that God would operate in this way, hear their prayers and save them and deliver them when they ignore him and openly rebel him whenever life is easy. But to the one who embraces God's forgiveness, who upon recognizing their sin does not cover it up but humbly confesses, that person they enjoy more effective prayer And it says that God will be a hiding place for them when the waters rise. That doesn't mean they won't be affected by life's troubles. They will be. But it means that God will not let that water overwhelm or overtake them. So David is telling us, do not wait to confess when you have sinned. As soon as you recognize it, come before the Lord and acknowledge that sin to him. Do not think that because life is calm and easy right now, because you're not being disciplined right now, that you don't need to confess. The Lord may be, being, may be being patient with you, but He has not overlooked your sin. And if you choose to live in it and ignore His commands, the Lord may choose to ignore your cries of help. And that is a deeply unsettling thought. He'll never ignore the, the, the humble sinner that comes before Him looking for forgiveness. But he will ignore the prideful who who chooses to conceal their sin. So David is again showing us how much better it is to confess our sin rather than to conceal it. Confessing our sin brings joy. It brings forgiveness. It brings unhindered fellowship with the Lord. Confidence that God will hear our prayers. It assures us that God will be a help to us in times of trouble. This is by far the better option. And David's gonna continue this same warning against slowness to confess in the final section. So please take a look at your Bible uh, one more time with me and we'll read verses eight through 11. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or he will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Most often when we come to verse 8, people tend to assume that, that God has started speaking. That he's the one saying, I will teach and I will instruct you. And it makes actually more sense here to understand David as the speaker still. Uh, it would be strange because in verse 10, God, or God would be using the third person pronoun, him or his, and God doesn't often use that about himself. Um, I'm actually not aware of any places that he does use it. He may, I'm just not aware of them, but it would be uncommon for God to talk about himself in the third person, using the third person pronoun like that. But I point this out because many interpreters assume God to be the speaker here, and I don't believe that he is. You'll notice in the ESV, if you're looking at your Bible, there's no quotation marks there around those words. And that tells us that the translators also thought that this was a continuation of David's words here. But whether this is God or David speaking directly, the source of these words ultimately are God. And the meaning doesn't change much either way. So in these verses then, David is offering instruction and counsel to the congregation of believers. And he's applying the teaching, the instruction, to the topic at hand, confession. To teach and instruct usually relates to the teaching of the law, the teaching of the Torah. And to give counsel is to give wise advice. So David's intent now is to teach the people what the right and moral way to deal with our sin is. David wants the people to know what God requires of them when they do fall into sin. And that David does this with his eye upon them. It demonstrates the affection and the care that David has for these people. He's saying, I intend to counsel you, to watch over you, to ensure that you learn this, that you don't miss this and make the same mistakes that I have made. So David teaches by sharing his own failure in the first five verses. And now he does it through the metaphor, the metaphor of of a horse or a mule. And he says that these animals have no understanding. And that's true. If a horse throws its rider from the saddle and the rider dies, was that an immoral action on the horse's part? No, it wasn't. If a mule kicks its owner, was that immoral on the mule's part? Certainly not. They don't have the capacity to understand morality. They don't know what right and wrong is. They, they, an animal doesn't make choices based on those things, right? They, they make it based on instinct, on fear, uh, on their, ba- their body's natural response to things like hunger. You can't reason a horse or a mule into doing what you want it to do. Kind of like my 16-month-old daughter. You must force it and teach it in the way that it should go. And you do this with a bit and bridle. So if you guys don't know what that is, the bit goes into the mouth... And depending on how hard you pull on that bit, it can cause mild discomfort to severe pain for that horse. And the way that you do that is you pull this way if you want the horse to go this way. You pull this way if you want to go that way. And this allows you to direct the steps of the horse to keep it in place when needed. Parents, how many of you guys wish that you didn't need to discipline your children? Because your children, every time you ask them to do something... I said, yes, mom, yes, dad. I would be happy to do this. And they obey the first time with a joyful spirit. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it would be very nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Students, teenagers, children, is your life easier when you obey your parents? Or when you take an attitude you disobey and you have to be disciplined only to end up having to do the thing you didn't want to do in the first place later? See, it makes, it makes a lot less sense when you phrase it that way. It would be easier if you did it without needing discipline. And that's David's point. Don't be like an animal that needs discipline to do the right thing. Don't wait until the Lord disciplines you to confess your sin to Him. Do the right thing right now. You have understanding, you know what God desires. The Lord will discipline his people who sin against him. But David is telling us, it doesn't need to come to that. Look how miserable I was. Do you really want to go through what I went through? Let go of your sin. Confess before the Lord's hand is heavy upon you in discipline. It shouldn't take the Lord's discipline to change your ways. Why test his discipline? Why test his patience when you can simply enjoy fellowship with him and be blessed We can choose to be foolish, to be overcome by the sorrows and the troubles of the world like the wicked are. You have that option. You can distance yourself from God by clinging to your sin. You can place yourself under the discipline of God, but that would be very foolish. You could also be wise. And when you recognize your sin, confess it. Embrace the forgiveness that he freely offers to us. Be surrounded in his steadfast love. This forgiveness, this joy, this love is freely offered to us, but we don't enjoy it to the fullest extent when there is deceit in our spirit. Finally, when we come to verse 11, David forms a parallel with verse 1. In verse 1, uh, or here in verse 11, he's calling God's people to worship the Lord, to respond to this incredible forgiveness that the Lord offers. And what other response is there? I mean, this is such a good deal for us. Confess, you'll be forgiven, and you'll be blessed. When we think of God's mercy and forgiveness, we ought to be moved to worship him. In verse one, those who experience the Lord's forgiveness are blessed, they find great joy because they are in right relationship with God. Now here in verse 11, the righteous and the upright in heart, they're rejoicing, they're shouting for joy. That sounds much better than my bones wasting away all the day as I groan. They know that they are in right relationship with the Lord. The righteous and upright in heart, they're not perfect. They are sinners like you and I. They did not make themselves righteous. But they are considered righteous through their genuine and humble confession. And through the gracious forgiveness of God. Confession and forgiveness bring the joy of unhindered fellowship with the Lord. That is the big idea. That is what David wants to instill into each of us. Confession and forgiveness bring the joy of unhindered fellowship with the Lord. It is a shame that so many Christians believe or at the very least act like the only time they need to confess is, is at conversion. And it is true. When we give our life to Jesus, we do need to confess our sinfulness, confess our need for a savior in order to be saved. But confession should be a regular part of even the most mature believer's life. Regularly confessing your sin, it, it doesn't save you. It doesn't maintain your salvation. Once you are saved, you are secure in the hands of Jesus. There is nothing you can do to change that, period. But there are consequences for Christians who choose to, to continue in sin and refuse to confess their sin before the Lord. So when you recognize your sin, confess and seek forgiveness. I know this is super obvious, and I've said this had maybe 50 times this morning, but I, I want this to stick into your brains. Learn from David's mistake. Don't wait and learn the hard way. Don't be like a horse that needs a bit in its mouth. Don't don't wait for the Lord's discipline to do what is right. Too often Christians sin and then simply move on as if nothing happened. Acknowledge your sin. Ask the Lord to forgive you because He will. And I know that sometimes it's not an intentional thing. It's more that we we view our sin as less serious. I didn't kill a guy. I'm not not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not doing any of the big ones. So is it really a big deal if I'm a little bit prideful? If I'm impatient, if I lack self-control sometimes? But the problem is, is, is we're tempted far more often with those little things than we are with the big things. So if we're okay giving in to the temptation with those little sins, most of the time temptation comes our way then, then we're giving in and we're walking in that sin, refusing to confess that to the Lord even those so-called little sins aren't little, they ought to be confessed because even those sins can hinder fellowship with the Lord and bring discipline. Maybe for you, it's the opposite. Maybe you do recognize the seriousness of your sin and it's the shame, the guilt, the, the embarrassment you feel that is keeping you from confessing that to the Lord. You know, you think God has to be so upset with me, so disappointed, so done with me because I just keep stumbling into the same sin. I've been there before, and let me encourage you, if that is you, brother or sister, you have an advocate before the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Your sin will not surprise Jesus. If you are in Christ, trust me, he He knew everything that you were going to do, good or bad, before he went to the cross. Nothing you do is going to change your position before the Father. You are a child of God, not because of what you did or didn't do, but because of what Jesus did. You are not changing that. But as God's child, you still may be disciplined if you persist in your sin. So trust in the mercy and the steadfast love of God. Confess your sin to him because he is faithful to forgive. I promise, I promise you will find forgiveness. And I can promise you that because God promised it himself. Stop carrying the shame and the guilt that Jesus already carried to the cross. We sung that this morning in the first song. You took all our shame and you left it in the grave. That's not just a nice phrase that we sing. That is true. That that is that is accurate theology. If you're carrying around that guilt, you're exhausting yourself. You're carrying something for no reason. Leave that at the foot of the cross. Confess your sin to the Lord and embrace His forgiveness. Sometimes the reason we don't confess is, is far darker. Sometimes we don't confess because we enjoy our sinfulness. We don't want to get rid of it. We know what God says, but, but this is just too enjoyable, too pleasurable. We don't want to stop. So we hide it from everybody. We hide it from our friends, from, from our pastors, from our elders. We, we hide it from our spouse. And you can get really good at fooling people, but you will not pull the wool over God's eyes, I promise you. You may think no one will suspect me of such a thing. You may think that if I do enough good things, or if I'm involved enough at church, maybe God won't notice. He'll just notice the good things or he just won't care that much about this little habit. God does see that. He is concerned with it. I'd be shocked if there weren't some of you in here today that are holding on to hidden sin, refusing to confess it. Brother or sister, if that is you, hear the word of God and obey. Confess your sin to the Lord. It is so much better than the alternative. As soon as you recognize your sin, confess. God is faithful to forgive us when we sin, and you will find relief from the guilt and the shame you are carrying. And before we close, I also want to encourage you to consider confessing publicly before other mature, trusted believers as well. And I want to qualify this, because I don't mean... I want you to practice confession as the Catholic church practices confession. I'm not asking you to come find me or the other elders and and bury your soul and tell us every single one of your sins. I'm not saying that you need to seek forgiveness from somebody that isn't God. Unless, of course, you sinned against somebody specifically, then it would be appropriate to seek forgiveness from them. But what I mean is that after you have confessed and sought the Lord's forgiveness, share your sin and shortcomings in an appropriate way with a trusted brother or sister. If you're a brother, share it with a brother. If you're a sister, share it with a sister. Unless you're sharing that with your spouse, that would be appropriate as well. But, but share it for the purpose of encouragement and accountability. That's what David's doing here. This is public confession on David's part. This was a song for corporate worship and he's telling everybody, here's how I sinned. Here's how I had to learn the hard way. Let it encourage you and keep you from making the same mistake. Public confession to another believer or a small group of believers can be extremely Helpful. And it's a shame that that so many of us don't do this more often. I wish so badly that we would all set aside our pride, that we would be willing to be vulnerable in this way because there is so much benefit to sharing these kinds of things with our trusted brothers and sisters. I have guys in my life that I do this with, that I confess my sinfulness, my shortcomings with them. And when I do, they encourage me. They pray with me. They pray for me. When I have messed up, I can share it with them and they will encourage me to be more faithful in the future. And then when they check in on me, they know what to ask about. They know what to be praying for. I do this with my wife as well. But these kinds of relationships have made me a better and more faithful follower of Jesus. And if you don't have these relationships, man, I encourage you to work toward building them. pray that God would provide them for you. Because God uses these types of relationships in a powerful way to grow and mature his people. As often as we sin, confession should be a regular occurrence in our time with the lord i mean I, I, as much as we say i mean weekly if not daily and sharing our struggles with with other believers should also be a normal thing for us the lord does discipline his people you can be foolish you can ignore your sin refuse to confess You can risk placing yourself under the Lord's discipline. You can carry guilt you don't need to carry. You can continue to pursue the sin that offers you no eternal value. But I'd ask why? Why would you do that when the alternative that God has offered is so much better? Don't make the foolish choice. If there is sin in your life, I urge you, confess that to the Lord today. Whether you feel it is large or a small sin, confess it, seek forgiveness, and embrace the joy of unhindered fellowship with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and in awe when we think of the depth of your mercy. There truly is no limit to the amount that you are willing to forgive. Lord, we are so grateful that that you require nothing of us but but humble confession and repentance. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son that has made our salvation and our forgiveness possible. And Lord, I pray that, that, that all of us in here who are holding on to sin, that we would confess that to you. And not just confess, but that we would repent and turn away from that sin and to walk more faithfully with you. Lord, if there are any here who have grown callous because they have persisted in their sin for so long, I pray that you would break those callouses, that they would be broken and contrite over their sin. We thank you so much for your forgiveness and your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.